I hope that you can say those words, that it is well with your soul. Would you pray with me as we turn to the God who makes it well for our souls? Father God, you are good. I would pray that each person in this place might have those words resonate within the deepest part of their being, that it is well with our souls. Father, would you guide us now as we turn to your word in which we are shown by your grace through your spirit how these words are true, how it may be well with our souls. When our life's circumstances speak to the contrary, how we may know, not think, know, an experiential know that cannot be taken from us and that we will live out unto your glory until you come or we are taken to be with you. God, might we know these words and might you guide our time, guard my lips such that what we hear, oh God, is what you desire we hear. May we see you in your word this morning, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 4? Exodus chapter 4, and this morning we continue with our study of the Scriptures that we may come to know the God of the Scriptures as He has revealed Himself and not as we so often conceive Him. And so Exodus chapter 4, and as you're turning there, I'd like to share a story with you to set the stage for the truth that I believe God reveals regarding Himself in the text that we're going to study together. I love being a father. I have three incredible children whom I love dearly, and who are growing up far too fast. As many of you know, it seems like just yesterday when we arrived, Elena was five, Josiah was three, Tabitha was a year and a half, and while those diaper days were difficult, they were special. I love being able to pick up my kids, carry them around, just hold them in my arms whenever they would come running and give them a big hug. You know, just a few weeks ago, Josiah and I went with Herbert to watch a soccer game up in New Jersey, and we returned home at about 3.30 the following morning. And I remember driving into the driveway and looking over at Josiah, and the man was just sacked out. I mean, just snoring logs. And I recall thinking, man, how special it was and would be again if I could just go over there and pick him up and carry him into his room and, and lay him down. But the boy weighs over 80 pounds. And there's no way that I could have picked him up and him remain awake or sleep and, and not injure myself in the process. My kids are just getting, they're getting too big for me to carry and they're becoming more discerning, which is a good thing. <laughs> However, I love being able to tell my children stories about all kinds of things, stories that were so wild and so outlandish that they couldn't possibly be true, and yet my children believed me. When they would ask me, Daddy, why are my teeth falling out? I would say, because there's little moles that live in your mouth and they're burrowing to the surface and it ran into your tooth and <gasps> it fell out, and they believed me. Or when, why, Daddy, does our car make so much noise? And I could say, son, it's because our car swallowed a bunch of air like you tend to do, and that's what's making his tummy ache, you know? And they, they believe me. Elena in particular, she was, is, 
her daddy's girl. And she trusted me in my stories without hesitation. She still does to some degree, far more so than the other two. They're the cynics. Now, for full disclosure, I always told my tales in front of my beloved wife, who would immediately correct them if they were far too confusing, outlandish. So Melinda always was the bubble popper. Uh, but I, I loved, I loved playing make-believe with my kids. Unfortunately, at least from my daddy's perspective, my kids don't appreciate my stories anymore. In fact, they usually dismiss my explanations for things that are just outrageous, even when, in fact, my explanation is true. And only every now and then, when I give them a really good one, will they give it some serious consideration. But even then, they'll always go, Mom, Dad, and then they'll give the explanation that I provided, ending it with, is that true? Really, is that true? As my children have grown, they have come to discern the difference between my tales that are fiction and those that are true. They know that their dad can make stuff up. He's prone to, to elaborate. He's a pastor. And so they, they're rightfully skeptical. They doubt the veracity of some of the stories that I share, just like the character in our text today. Moses questioned God. He, he, he doubted the truth of what God told him. It seems so outrageous that he, he couldn't help but be skeptical. And thus God revealed to Moses his absolute trustworthiness, his sovereignty over all things. And so that's what I believe God would have us see together this morning. So if your Bibles are open to Exodus 4, let me invite you to follow along as I read our text, beginning there in verse 1. Moses answered, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What's in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave men his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I the Lord, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if 
he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, I believe that the first thing we see together here in our text is the obvious fact. Moses questioned God's truthfulness. Moses questioned God's truthfulness. The man had issues, trust issues, and he expressed these issues in the very first words of the chapter. What if they don't believe me? And just so we all recall the setting for these sentiments, Moses is in the Midian desert, dialoguing with a bush that's on fire, and yet somehow is failing to burn out. And this bush has informed Moses that he's been selected to return to Egypt, the land from which he had fled justice for murdering a man, and to, to save the captive Hebrews from Pharaoh's hand. And what's interesting here about Moses' hesitation that's voiced in verse 1 is that this is the third time in the course of this conversation that began back in chapter 3 and verse 4 that he's done so. Third time, Moses has repeatedly balked at the mission for which he's been selected. The first time that Moses questioned God's truthfulness, he did so, I believe, in light of God's choice. God's choice. In chapter 3, verse 11, Moses asked, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? At this point, I believe Moses' response reflects what, what was the initial step, I think, in all natural human process. Meaning, how does this impact me? You know, as a self-seeking, self-serving, self-promoting human being, Moses naturally begins by considering God's proposal as it affects him. And after a quick assumption or assessment of his situation, Moses concludes, God, you've got the wrong guy. I mean, you've made the wrong choice. And to be fair, like my explanation for why we lose teeth, God's selection seems dubious, doesn't it? For one thing, Moses is old. He's an octogenarian, according to Exodus 7, 7, he's already 80 when he speaks to Pharaoh. So he isn't in that age range that we would expect for one to perform such a rescue mission. Second, the man's been living in the desert, minding sheep for some 40 years. That's according to Acts chapter 7 and verse 30. So any people skills or political savvy that he may have had would have been long forgotten. Plus, the man has a past. He's a murderer who ran in trying to avoid justice. And so as Moses considers God's call, it doesn't take him long to conclude that God's chosen the wrong guy. And church, don't we often respond like Moses? We hear Christ's great commission to go and make disciples of all nations and how we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And our immediate response is, sure, 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 someone will, but not me. Now that calls for a special Christian or simply some other Christian who's younger, better trained, more comfortable in international settings, has more resources or fewer ailments. Yes, yes, Christ has commissioned us, but I can't go. And God can't have meant me. He didn't choose me to go, did he? Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, a Christian, but you've heard that God loves you. And so he loves you so much that he sent his son so that you might have life. He died on a cross so that you might have life in him. And your immediate reaction is, that's not possible. <laughs> no way. God couldn't love me. There's no way after all that I've done, the people that I've let down, the decisions that I've made, God couldn't possibly have chosen me. Could he? I believe 
Moses, Moses questioned God's truthfulness in light of God's choice. He also questioned God's truthfulness in light of God's character. In light of God's character, as we saw several weeks ago, immediately following Moses' initial hesitation, God responds by promising his presence. I will be with you. He even gave Moses a sign, something that he could look to and, and thereby know the veracity of God's call in his life. And Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? Moses' question revealed his uncertainty regarding God's character. And we discussed this point, if you were with us several weeks ago, we discussed this in depth about how Moses clearly knew about God. And so that is specifically the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he most certainly didn't know God. He didn't know his name, and thus he couldn't trust his character. And I believe that this doubt is further affirmed in that very first verse we read together this morning. Because it, it follows, if you look at context, it follows God's lengthy introduction in which he states his name, he reiterates his call, as well as revealing the response of those to whom he's sending Moses, and the ultimate result, which will see the Israelites leaving Egypt, having plundered them like a triumphant army. All of this, all of this God relates to Moses in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and still Moses says in verse 1 of chapter 4, what if they don't believe me? Or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. That's how the NIV renders verse 1 there. And it, and it clearly communicates Moses' hesitation, his distrust of God's character. However, I believe that the ESV here displays this even more starkly. If you have an ESV, it reads, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The ESV translates Moses' response here as declarative as opposed to interrogative. And now this doesn't change its meaning in any way, but it certainly emphasizes Moses' concerns, doesn't it? However slight his initial hesitations may have been, Moses, I believe, is now in full freakout mode. I mean, this is during God's introduction of himself and further explanation of his plan that the penny finally dropped for Moses. <laughs> He's realized, man, <laughs> oh man, God's going to do this. He's made up his mind. He's not kidding here. He's actually got this whole thing worked out, and it involves me. And I know that we can all relate to Moses here, as each and every one of us has encountered commands of God, which we initially laughed off, did we not? It might be commands that God has given us to seek out those whom we've sinned against and find their forgiveness. You know, some of us, we have this idea and the idea of finding someone that we may have sinned against in our past, we may have wronged, those who may not even share our faith. The whole idea seems absolutely crazy. There's no way that God would make me seek out a former friend, acquaintance, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, maybe a former spouse, and ask their forgiveness. Are you kidding me? We come up with all manner of excuses, don't we? By bringing this to light will only create more hurt. If I tell this person, they might bring legal action against me. I can't. God wouldn't. He doesn't. Couldn't mean... Or, or maybe we read God's call to love our enemies and we balk. <laughs> no way I can love him. No way. After all he did to me, I can't love her. She doesn't deserve it. Or God's command to forgive. Oh, I, I can forgive all right, but I'll never forget. <laughs> after everything that's happened, hmm, it's not possible. I can forgive, 
a lot of things. But if I, if I forgive that, I'll lose a part of me that has defined me for so long. I can't. God wouldn't mean that. Moses questioned God's truthfulness. And then God displayed his patience. And while I don't believe that this is the principal point here made in our text, I don't think we can afford to miss it. Because it's here God's man is stubbornly questioning God's truthfulness. And what is God's response? It's, it's wholly unlike mine, I can tell you. Now, I would have directed Moses back to all that I had said. I would have pointed Moses to verse 18, back where, where just a breath before I had declared, the elders of Israel, what? Will listen to you. Why are you telling me that they won't, Moses? Are you calling me a liar? I mean, then I would have used words like those that were spoken to Job to put this dirty desert sheep dweller in his place by inquiring, Moses, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, Moses, tell me. If you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line out across it? Or on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang and all the angels shouted for joy? Moses, huh? Where were you? Who shut up? The, the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. Do I need to go on, Moses? That's what I would have likely done. And yet God displays patience. For after all, as he later describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God reveals an aspect of his character, his divine patience. Because rather than destroying Moses and simply finding someone else, he responds by giving him a firsthand demonstration of how he's going to verify his word and deliver his people. Verses 2 through 9 here in our text, God provides Moses with three signs. Three signs to demonstrate his power to perform all that he has just promised. In the first, God instructs Moses to throw his staff down on the ground. And in the moment that he does so, it becomes a snake, which like any normal human being other than a herpetologist, Moses runs away from. I'm right with Moses there. But God commands him, grab it by the tail, which he does. And this snake promptly changes back into a staff. Now, I don't know about you, but I would like to think that at this point, I'd have been satisfied with God's demonstration, that at this early stage, I would have admitted that I'd been a doubter. That's a given that having seen this staff to snake to staff thing, now I'm a believer, and I'm sorry forever, having questioned your choice and your character. But such is the lavish nature of our God and his knowledge of his people that without hesitation, he provides Moses with a second sign, doesn't he? And this time, he has Moses place his hand inside his coat and withdraw it. And the moment that he does, his hand is leprous, it reads, like snow. Can you imagine how Moses must have felt when he pulled his hand out and he looked at it from beneath his cloak? Ah, it's my hand! I mean, people who contracted leprosy in the Bible, I mean, they were, they were moved, cordoned off from the rest of society. It was a, this is a death sentence if you will. So to pull your hand out from your jacket and to see your skin like that, <laughs> Moses had to have been stunned. But then God directs him to place his hand back within his cloak. And like the snake before, his hand is fully restored. Now, with this demonstration, even the ancients should have accepted God's trustworthiness because religion was closely tied 
to physical well-being. In fact, the major function of religion in ancient times, and honestly for modern times as well, is the offering of sacrifices in worship to various gods and goddesses. Why? To appeal to their ability to withdraw disease. And so you just imagine the response when Moses demonstrates Yahweh's power over a disease as deadly as leprosy. However, God knew, I believe, the stubborn nature of human hearts, and thus he provides Moses with a third sign, a final sign. God instructs Moses to take some water from the Nile and to pour it on the ground. And the water, he says, that you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And this sign anticipated for those who are familiar with the story the first of the plagues that God would bring upon the Egyptians. It was also the first of God's signs which in, in which this element that was transformed wasn't restored. And this is a fact that's led some commentators to view this display of, the perma- of, God's, of God's sovereignty as the permanence of which God intended his judgment upon the Egyptians. And, and further, since this water was going to be drawn from the Nile, they argued that this was God's way of declaring to Moses his power over Egypt and all of the Egyptians. Now I want you to, for just a moment, try and put yourself in Moses' place. Try to imagine all that the man has just witnessed. And I know that this is impossible, but just give it a whirl. Humor me. Imagine yourselves engaging this burning bush and being informed by God that he's chosen you to send you to Egypt to save his people. And you've also just witnessed these three signs, supernatural occurrences, if you will, which despite your initial hesitancy, you've got to admit, they're convincing. So here's your scenario. What do you think your first words would be? You know, in every, in every film that I ran in my mind, I don't think I could have anticipated verse 10, where Moses responds, Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, no, neither in the past nor in the time that you've been speaking to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Moses' continued resistance comes as a complete shock to me almost every time I read it. It blows my mind. That having watched your staff turn into a snake, turn back into a staff again, your hand go from healthy to nasty to healed, and then be informed that when you pour water on the ground, it's going to turn into blood. I'm amazed that Moses isn't packing his bags for the pyramids. And yet, as I've considered Moses' response more and more, I find that it reflects my own. Because what I believe we see here in Moses' words is his desire for God to give him all the answers up front. You notice how Moses admits his issues with public speaking here and how they've plagued him from the past and even in the present. That is the time during which God has been speaking to him. Isn't that interesting? You know, Moses admits his past issues, but then he relates those issues to the present and in particular to the time during which God has been speaking to him. It would seem to me that Moses recognized his limitation, but he expected God to overcome it before he obeyed. Because you just keep in mind, he just witnessed God heal his nasty leprous hand. And yet apparently, he still finds himself stammering. So he can't see, how could God use me? Moses still doesn't trust God, does he? And yet it's at this point that having demonstrated his patience, God declares his trustworthiness or his sovereignty. The fact that everything he says is true. Why? Because he's in control of Everything. Would you look back with me there to verse 11 in our text where God had, once again, he demonstrates his great patience and the fact that he isn't demanding blind faith, meaning God isn't calling Moses to simply step out on a limb here and despite being a horrible speaker, just believe 
that it will all work out. No, the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Friends, in this declaration of his divine trustworthiness, I believe that God does two things that we need to see together. First of all, he reassures Moses. He reassures Moses. God comforts this nomadic desert sheep herder by declaring that his disability is as nothing. God made the very instrument that Moses can't seem to bring under control. He is a creator God. And thus, Moses need only trust him and God will do all that he has declared he will do. In other words, Moses, your concerns are groundless. While God's call to believe is grounded, it is grounded in his word communicated to his servant, and it is grounded in human reason. For how else could Moses understand God unless his reason were involved? And church, this is a point of huge importance for us, I believe, today, because there are many in our world who would argue that faith is simply blind. Have you heard that expression before? Faith is blind. To believe in God requires stepping off of the ledge of reason simply out into this abyss of the unknown that can't be substantiated. Faith is disconnected from reality. And for this reason, it has value in as much as it may provide you with, say, mental stability or, or peace of mind, possibly even a framework within which to categorize tragedies or, or loss. But it has no bearing on how you live in the now because this is the realm of the real, Right? And this is why, church, I believe we see so many young people leaving the church as they become adults. They don't have a sense of obligation to cultural practice like their parents may have done. And so they, they can't see, why would we continue to, to come to something that has no bearing on my life now? And friends, that's not true faith. God's words to Moses were real. They communicated truth. And they engaged his mind and declared God's trustworthiness. All that Moses had to do was believe. And so the first thing that God does is to reassure Moses that he created the first man's mouth. And then second, that he continued creating every single person on this planet just as he sees fit. God sovereignly forms every single person for his glorious purposes. And friends, <laughs> this is a difficult truth for us to wrap our minds around, but it is one that Scripture proclaims over and over. God is the Creator. He made man's mouth, and His providence rules over all things. Ultimately, it is He who makes a person dumb, deaf, seeing, blind, and we see this so beautifully communicated in John's Gospel, chapter 9, where Jesus' disciples approached Him, if you recall this story, and they asked, in light of a blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. And Jesus' response was, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened. Why? So that the work of God might be displayed. God always has a purpose for every event, whether we can see it or not. Who makes him deaf or her deaf? Who makes him mute or can't see? Is it not I, the Lord? Church, what's incredible about this interaction between God and Moses is that even after this ultimate answer, God's final declaration of his supreme trustworthiness, his supreme trustworthiness, his sovereignty over all things, Moses still responds, verse 13, oh Lord, please just send someone else. Send someone else to do it. Isn't that how we often respond to the Lord? 
We have God's word to us, church, in which he has revealed himself, his person, his promises, his plans. We have the record of God's faithfulness to his people, his miraculous power and pledge to provide. And yet we, like Moses, balk because we don't believe him. Instead, we fix our eyes on what's around us, our limitations, or that which we see reflected in the created order. We argue that God, God can't be like this, or he can't want us to do that because we've never seen that. Or we have limitations. We don't have the capacity. And in the end, we find ourselves frustrated, desperately wanting God to be real, but unsure as to how we can overcome our disbelief. You feel that way this morning? Like Moses surely did. The beauty of this story, friends, is that Moses did eventually learn to trust the Lord. And by the end of his life, the scriptures tell us that God spoke to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. Would you like to know God in that way? You can. The Bible says that this kind of faith or belief, relationship with God comes from hearing his word. And we've all heard his word together this morning. Would you like to begin a relationship with the God of the Bible today? And so as we close, I'd like to pray for those who might. But I also want to pray for all of us who might already be following Christ, but, but who may have been struggling to trust Him, may have been battling with doubt and, and, and struggling to obey Him. I'd like to pray that you would have the strength to admit your struggles with doubt. Admit your, your struggle with disobedience and seek God's forgiveness so that you, like Moses, might be used for God's glory. So would you pray with me to these ends as we close? Lord God, you are sovereign. Lord, and it's easy for us to read a story such as Moses's and to smile at the man's hesitation. But Father, how similar to Moses am I? How quick am I to doubt when I read your promises? How quick am I to, to be anxious about tomorrow when it is outside of my control and yet you have promised that we have nothing to fear. You have conquered death, our greatest enemy. And you promise your presence, which is ultimate. Therefore, what do we have to fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? And yet I find myself worrying. Father, would you give us your grace that we might see that you are sovereign. And Lord, thank you for your display of great patience, of your fathomless love, as you would send your Son to die on a cross for us, that whoever believes in Jesus may have relationship with you, might no longer have to wonder about eternity, we can know. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who having heard of Moses' hesitations can relate, having heard of Moses' angst in obedience can relate, Father, would you by your grace this morning enable them to see that we may all have relationship with you because of your great gospel. Father, would you open eyes and hearts. Would you save? Lord, and if there is anyone this morning that would 
would desire to talk further about this, then God, I pray that they would find me down front as we close our service. And Lord, for those of us who know you and yet still struggle with doubt, whose past week may have been overwhelming to the point of just despair, God, might this time we be reminded of who you are. Lord, that we don't sit at the center of the universe. Lord, life doesn't revolve around us. We are not the be-all, end-all. Lord, for if that were true, we would be right to be fearful. We would be right to be anxious, to be freaking out. But God, you have given us everything by your grace in our relationship with Jesus. You have brought us into union with Christ. Father, so now your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, might we be reminded of that this morning. And Lord, if there is sin that we need confess, if there are conversations that we need to have, if there's obedience that we need to act on, God, would you give us the strength? Lord, as we see, you gave Moses. Thank you for your great faithfulness, of which we've already sung. You are faithful, God. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.